0: Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph.
1: And I'm Ashley Wakefield.
0: And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books. And maybe afterwards, you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. To another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And I've got with me in the studio Ashley Wakefield.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Uh, how are you doing, Ashley? How was your week? I, I guess we had two weeks off for you, seeing the last week was a ice icepocalypse kind of thing.
1: Yeah, the Memphis weather doesn't know what it wants to do. Like, it was freezing cold over the weekend, and then today it's like 60-something degrees. So, yeah, but <laughs> I've been super tired this week. I've just been coming home like I just want to get into bed, but then I can't because I have to, like... Do a paper and then it's like a uh, college life, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I I don't miss those days at all. <laughs> um, so what we've been doing right now is we've been going through the Book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, and we have now hit chapter thirty. Um, we're almost at the halfway part. We are three chapters away from it, and that is really cool for me. I uh, was thinking about this the other day and thinking that I've kind of started this thing six months ago and. You can go back and listen to six old, six month old Noah, and I guess two month old Ashley on this spot <laughs> <Ten> <months>. of <laughs> two month or three month. I think it's been three months actually. Uh, yeah, it had been three months. So yeah, it uh, you can go back and listen to me and ashley in the past and it's crazy i'm someone that thinks about the past a lot and it's just weird to have like my thoughts from like six months ago on something like this so yeah i don't know i don't know if that does any weird things for other people just to hear their voice from six months ago on something that's out in the public but definitely does for me i don't know does that do you ever get that feeling ashley
1: about, like, going back and listening to my voice?
0: Yeah, yeah, and just, like, your thoughts from, like, a, you know, in the in the past, you know? some Sometimes you say things, and then you don't realize that you said it, and then you go back and, oh, yeah, I said that.
1: I, I guess it kind of reminds me about um, my dreams. Like, this is a thing that I do, which may seem weird to some people, but it's perfectly normal to me. But, like, sometimes <laughs> I'll have dreams about things, and then I'll go to my phone, and then I'll do a voice recording of it if I feel like it was super important and then sometimes I go back and listen to it and I'm like I completely forgot I dreamed about that like oh. I completely forgot I mentioned that like I don't know because I feel like the dreams have deep meaning so like and sometimes I dream about things and they happen in real life so like I just try to keep track of like I had a dream about that before that happened
0: yeah yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah so uh, all that to say we are into chapter 30 and we've got five chapters left in this section before we get to a new section in the book of Isaiah Um Um, which is going to be very jarring for a lot of you. Um, We've been in a very poetry-focused sections all the way through. Um, There's been a couple elements of prose here and there. By prose, I just mean like normal sentences and not kind of in that uh, poetic stanza kind of uh, structure. Um, But yeah, we've been in this kind of uh, poetic um, thing really for since the beginning, and we are about to hit um, a section that is all prose and no poetry at all. That'll start in chapter uh, 35, I believe, and uh, work its way until the very end of chapter 39. Um, and it's uh, funny because it's actually a retelling of a story that's told in King. So I'm really excited for that, but we've got a little bit left in this poetry before we get there. And this section, if you're unfamiliar with what we're doing in this section, this section is really um, an opportunity for... For the writer of Isaiah to kind of pull back from his more specific um, judgments against specific nations and looking at sort of the broader picture of what God is going to do in the world, and what he, what things he sees that Judah is doing, what things he sees that the rest of the nations are doing, and his ultimate goal for these kind of cities that's uh, been uh, really powerful cities in the world and how he's going to show his power in spite of the strength and fortitude of all these different cities. And so that's kind of just some background um, setup for what we're about to get into today. And uh, this is a really long chapter, so uh, it'll be uh, one to kind of sit back and uh, maybe grab another cup of tea or coffee and listen as Ashley reads this passage. Ashley, you ready?
1: I think I am.
0: All right, let's do this.
1: Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting, me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials and so on, and their envoys have a ride in Haines, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them, who bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carrying their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt whose help is utterly useless. Therefore I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right, tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly, That among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, No, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, We will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one At the threat of five you will all flee away Till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop Like a banner on a hill Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion For the Lord is a God of justice Blessed are all who wait for him People of Zion who will live in Jerusalem You will weep no more How gracious he will be when you cry for help As soon as he hears he will answer you Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a minstrel cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash, spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar, with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath, and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent, rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sea of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray and you will sing as on the night you celebrated a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire. With cloud bursts, thunderstorm and hail, the voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria with his rod he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing club will be to the music of timbrels and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it it ablaze.
0: All right. So uh, that was quite a long chapter. And uh, you might uh, have a hard time keeping all of that in your head. So we're going to try and pe- take this apart piece by piece and kind of work through it section by section so uh, you don't necessarily have to remember all that because it was pretty long. Ashley was like, man, this is like really long. I felt like I was reading for 20 minutes. Yeah, I was <laughs>
1: like, it's like I'm reading a novel. It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it's a gorgeous chapter and I love how it opens with uh, this typical woe that we're seeing. I've I, We've talked about woe in other places so I think you can go back a couple chapters. I think I yeah, even talked about it last, uh, last week too. So uh, Um, uh, Go back and uh, listen to last week's episode if you want to learn a little bit more about woe. But uh, we open with this woe to the obstinate children, um, declares the Lord to those who carry out the plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. And uh, this is kind of a theme of the entire Old Testament, really, which is that things always are bad when uh, Israel goes down to Egypt. Um, This is a theme that actually starts in Genesis. Um, You will see several times... Abraham goes down to Egypt, and things go really bad for him, and Sarah down there. Sarah ends up uh, getting a mistaken as a sister because of abraham's lie and ends up in a whole situation that's just not fun to be in and uh, i won't tell you any more about it but you can go in genesis and read about that it's really interesting but there's this motif that happens where oftentimes uh famine will strike in the land of canaan and the people in genesis will oftentimes go down to egypt to get food and anytime they do there's always this kind of sense of uh there being something bad is going to happen um, that's going to uh, mar the reputation of the Israelites and it's just kind of a theme that plays itself even into Exodus where the people are in the desert and they're uh, constantly wanting to go back to Egypt because there's meat and vegetables and types of different things and they don't want to eat God's bread anymore. So there's a lot of history that I just don't have time to get into with why this is such a big deal. But in this setting, what we're focusing on is the fact that Israel has decided to uh, form an alliance of some sort with Egypt so that they can take out Assyria. And it makes sense. We've talked about that in a couple episodes back that they were trying to have this send this envoy to Egypt. Egypt to um, get their help so that Egypt would help them overthrow Assyria, which was kind of the big powerhouse of the South. And we see God's opinion of them trying to do that. And we've talked about that in a couple episodes. I think, I can't remember what chapter it was that we really touched down on. I think it was in one of the oracles against specifically Egypt. But um, yeah, we've been kind of talking a lot about how Egypt in and of itself is not the salvation for Israel and God is supposed to be their salvation and that is definitely the conflict that you see here in this first little bit Um, and we see that they're just going to be put to shame as a result of that, that's kind of the ending of verse 5 is everyone will be put to shame because of the people's useless uh, to them who will bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace, that's talking about Egypt Um, we then have a kind of a break here um, and then we're moving more towards a prophecy against the animals and the negev which can kind of seem confusing i thought we were talking about egypt is kind of what you might think and then all of a sudden we're talking about animals and the Negev but it's actually kind of part of the Egypt um, prophecy as well uh, mainly to do with the journey that they would have had to have taken the Israelites would have had to have taken to get to Egypt would have been through the south of the Negev. The Negev is kind of located around the uh, Dead Sea actually um, and it's just south of Judah and Jerusalem and so it's what they would have been journeying through to get to Egypt and so that's why we have this sort of prophecy. It's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek prophecy against the animals that are in the Negev. And uh, so it's like kind of riffing on the idea of there being all these lions and lionesses that they're having to make their way through and kind of the danger that's in the Negev as they're journeying to kind of get this um, alliance made with Egypt. And then it ends in verse seven with this really uh, telling moment where it compares Egypt with a monster um, as well. It's compares uh Egypt to the monster called Rahav, um, which if you don't know what Rahav is, it's basically a a name that the Canaanites gave to that monster that I mentioned earlier, Tiamat, um, this uh kind of dragon-like creature mm-hmm. that represented chaos and nothingness really. And so basically the the ending is it's focusing on all these uh, beasts and animals that it's just like they're traveling through this wilderness of nothing and chaos and tohu vavohu which is kind of the Hebrew phrase for chaos and nothingness wild and waste and then they get to Egypt and Egypt's just the same as the Negev it's just as much a beast and it's just as chaotic and that's kind of the ending of this section and that's kind of what the author is using all this poetic language to kind of communicate how pointless and chaotic it is for israel to even try and make this journey down south through the negev to get to israel uh, to get to egypt sorry and uh you know have this relationship with egypt because it's just going to end in chaos and nothing yes. i
1: guess it kind of made me wonder like why why don't we ever ask god the questions that we need to ask him when we're making decisions in our mm. life because it makes you wonder like how often do people ask God about their relationships and not just like with marriage or dating, but with like their friendships with their finances or with their health. It's sort of like we just kind of figure where I can do it on my own or maybe they don't like the answer God will give them or maybe they don't hear the voice of God clearly. So it's just easier for them to do it themselves. And it's like you have a God in heaven that you believe in. Um, that you always say is merciful and gracious, but how often do you actually ask him to provide you with answers to something or to give you a plan? And it just makes me wonder why we don't even do that today, because there's so many people who say they believe in God, but they never actually consult him or let him in on the decisions that they're making.
0: That's a great point. I think that I've thought about that a lot in terms of uh, what is the appropriate way to make any type of decision in my life, you know, is, is it, one of those things where you always have to go to God and ask before you do something um, is there some kind of give and take. And I do think that in the new Testament, there does seem to be sort of this overlap between your own personal spirit mm-hmm. and the spirit that lives within you. Um, and the, those two seem to be in conversation with one another in sort of a way that I've never really fully understood, I will admit, but in a way that I think sometimes when we do things, we're unconsciously, doing things that the spirit is prompting us to do you know Mm -hmm. um so i do think that uh christians have a unique role in that uh oftentimes the spirit is subtly giving us hints and clues to what we should do even without us consciously asking if that makes any sense and even that in like romans 8 where the spirit groans quietly even without us kind of knowing that it does and sends up prayers to god that we don't even know uh, the spirit sending up prayers about. Uh, there just seems to be some clues there that seem to indicate that we're doing we're doing that kind of thing subconsciously. Um, I would say though that I think for some people that don't do this at all though, I think that that should be something that you should consider uh, and think about. Uh, are you just doing things on your own uh, intuitions and your own uh, thoughts and things and uh, trying to you know scheme and plan uh, how to get. Uh, good in life instead of really uh, asking God about those types of things and I think that's a great point to bring up
1: you know and I think that's also important why it's good to have a community of people who actually have the spirit of God around you because sometimes they'll let you know things that God is saying about your situation before you even tell them I had a conversation with my mom this morning um, Like that, where I was talking to her about something and she was like, yeah, I had a feeling that that wasn't right. that something wasn't going to work out, but I was just trying to wait to see if it wasn't. And it didn't. And I say, like, why didn't you tell me? And, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, so it's like that's why we come together as believers, because sometimes God gives somebody else the answer to what you're looking for. And sometimes they tell you, sometimes they don't. But they, at the end of the day, I feel like that even though God does give us common sense where we can't think on our own. He doesn't always want us to do things independently. So
0: Yeah, yeah, no. And I think that that's kind of how God works a lot of the time is it's very... Very much a wait and see kind of thing. Um, we definitely take an interesting turn. Uh, turn in verse eight, we kind of get more a little bit more global. We move away from the relationship between Israel and Egypt for a second, and we're now uh, seeing God tell Isaiah write on a tablet, um, inscribe on a scroll. And anytime that God kind of tells someone to write something on a scroll, um, this is generally so that they have no excuse of, for about what's to happen. They don't have an excuse of well. You know, you spoke this in some foreign way or some type of thing. They have written down, you know, a scroll of what it is. And anytime that's uh, there, it's for the people of Israel to remember um, how bad things got. Um, and that's typically the a way that God uses um, uh, for the people to have sort of a memory of things of things that are going on. So what we have here is we have um uh the rebellion that's sort of written down, uh, and in particular he's focusing on prophets, um, who appear appear to be prophesying things that are just not true and tend to be um Uh, prophesying about things that um, are going to be great and good. And this kind of been a theme in Isaiah is that Isaiah is very much in the minority as a kind of doom and gloom prophet while the rest of the prophets are prophesying great things and good times ahead. And the alliance with Egypt probably is going to be great. And they were probably prophesying that we're going to take down Assyria through this alliance and, you know, everything's going to be great and hunky dory. Right. And uh, again, Isaiah is the one that has to kind of break the bad news to people and say, no, that's not what you should be doing. You didn't consult God in this. And uh, these prophets are just lying and saying these things because that's what the king wants to hear. And that's what the people want to hear. Um, And it's very hard as a prophet to be someone that's constantly saying negative things. Like I've thought about that a lot. Uh, Like what the life of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel mm-hmm. must have been is just—it's not a fun life, you know. It's yeah. not a fun life where you're basically no. telling people, "No, things are going to get worse. Like, don't have any hope at all because this is just going to get worse." Um, and uh, it's definitely—it's definitely something that uh, I feel like in some places I, I uh, resonate with a lot is just that suffering that they had to go through, um, telling yeah. these sorts of messages.
1: Yeah, because I feel, well, sometimes I do feel like that. Sometimes the prophets, depending on who they are will be very, very blunt about what they're <laughs> saying and not really take their feelings into consideration no. at all. Like They're just like, yeah, this is how it is. I don't care how you feel about it. There was like a prophet. I can't remember who it was. I just looked at it. But it was the one where, um, I think it was the king. There was a the king of a nation. And he was saying, well, there is a prophet in Israel who can't speak to us about God, but I don't like him because he always says bad things about me. That's basically the paraphrase of what he said. So it was like, yeah. And so it was just that sometimes they do... I'm not going to say they take pleasure in hurting others, but they take great pleasure in speaking the the Lord's truth, if that makes sense. Because, you know, I've been on the other end of people prophesying to me, not necessarily bad about me, but just something very heavy that God wanted me to do. And it was really hard to hear. And it stayed on my mind for like several weeks, like not even several days, for several weeks. And it was hard to hear that. And you do kind of get into that mindset of I just want to hear something pleasant I just want to hear something good and then you know I have to go and talk to God about this and like why do I have to do this and like why did I have to hear that that did not make me happy and it was just sort of having to go through this this period of time where you got to get your peace of mind back because what you have to do is just a lot heavier than you expected. And so it's, I kind of relate to that, like just wanting to hear pleasant things. So,
0: yeah. And I will say um, something that I've noticed in a lot of readings of Isaiah has been that we tend to focus on the uh, future prophecies that Isaiah gives. We tend to focus on like Jesus and the Messiah being born and a lot of those types of prophecies. And then all the prophecies about Isaiah telling the people they need to shape up and like, you know, they need to repent and all this kind of stuff, we sort of push to the wayside because I think in our minds, we kind of think of prophecy as like, oh, something that was prophesied in the future, right? And it's not really anything to do with anything else other than that and this is very much as we've been going through this book kind of showing us that that's not how the biblical authors thought about prophecy they saw prophecy as looking at a person and kind of seeing underneath the appearances right Mm -hmm. kind of seeing what was underneath the hood of the car so to speak and seeing how broken things really were and that was prophecy for them was not just like oh you're going to do this in the future but also you have this thing you need to work on right now. And this is the thing right here that's, you know, foundationally wrong about your life. And that's definitely kind of the trend of, I honestly think that most of Isaiah is more of that than the future prophecies. Every now and then we, we'll get like a, a prophecy that you're like, oh yeah, that's that's definitely talking about something in the New Testament, for instance. But for the most part, it's predominantly looking at what the people of Israel are like right now and this Current period of time and saying change this, change this. This is this is going the wrong way. You need to change this, you know. Uh, and I think that that's what we see here. It, you know, in verse twelve, you can you can see because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit. This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It breaks in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercil- mercilessly. That's beautiful you know terrible image of just how how bad things have gotten and i love this idea of it like being like a small crack that suddenly just becomes so so big of a crack that it just shatters an entire high wall um and you just didn't even see it coming until suddenly it's just all exploded and the pieces are so small you can't even use them for anything like scooping up water or taking out coals it's just kind of shows what prophecy is like for Isaiah is more about in the moment, this is how things are going to pan out, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not really focused on what is going to come way later, Um, at least right now. We'll, We'll get to a little bit more of it in later chapters, and I'm not saying there isn't some type of futuristic aspect to Isaiah, but there is this You know, steady hand of change your stuff right now. And it's almost Mm -hmm. preaching, I would say, you know, in in a sense, it feels a lot like, you know, it's like a preacher getting up on a podium and telling you how to live your life, you know. Um, And we definitely have that, you know, moving on into verse 15. We see uh, one of my favorite verses in this entire chapter which says in repentance and rest is your salvation Mm -hmm. in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. And I think that that's something that uh, everybody could take to heart today. Allow me to be a pastor for a second and ask how much quietness and rest is in your life. Um, because if it's not in your life, then I would say you don't have a lot of salvation in your life, you know, and I would, I'd, I think that part of this is that God's saying that you were meant to be a people that uh, rest in quietness and trust and aren't scheming all the time, aren't trying to plan out every day of your life to make sure that it, you know, goes according to the plan and you're supposed to sort of rely and sit back on on God to do things in the world that will take care of you and uh, be a comforter to yeah. you in yeah, those that types of things. totally
1: speaks to my life because that reminds me of a season that I was going through or may stir- still currently be in. But I know that, um, speaking of prophecy, I know that um, last year, a couple months ago, um, I know God was calling me to rest because I was desperately looking for another job because I left my previous job because I did not like what was going on there. And so I was trying to find another one. And so... I know God kept calling me to like rest. And so I ended up doing this interview at the school, got hired for it, was so excited, was planning. And it's like, because God wanted me to rest, he just kept not letting anything work out. So I got hired for the job. But then it was like, oh, you can't come in because of all this paperwork and so on and so forth. And so even though I heard God telling me to rest, I just completely ignored it for whatever reason, because I felt like maybe I'm not hearing things right or whatever. And then I would have other people come to me. And basically prophesy and say, you're supposed to be resting now because you have to work later. So it's like, but I just didn't want to do that. Like I'm like, I have to go to work. I have to do this. And I kept stressing myself out doing it. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be obedient and just listen to God and just Mm. like rest. Because it was just, I think it's just so hard to do that as human beings. Because you feel like I have to be doing something. I can't just do nothing. And it's like, sometimes resting is like the best thing for you to do. Especially because God may be preparing you to do something Much greater that will will require you to lose a lot of rest. So he's trying to get you to rest now so that you won't regret it later. And that's something that somebody had told me. He was like, you need to rest now because you're going to regret it later if you don't. And so it was just really, but it's a really hard thing to do because I agree that, you know, it's kind of hard to just sort of depend on God alone because you always feel like I have to play a part in doing something. I have to help. And sometimes God's just like, I don't need your help. I can do this on my own, you know? Right.
0: Right. (laughs) Well, and that's the message of Abraham and Sarah, right? Is that God prophesies to them, uh, you're going to have a child. And the first thing they do is they freak out and like, how can we have a child at 90 and a hundred? I know we'll take your slave mistress and we'll make sure that she has a child through you. And then, then it'll all work out. It's like they immediately start scheming to get to the eventual promise of God. And instead of just letting God do what he's supposed to do, you know? Uh, And I, and I think it's that sort of, I think it's that dynamic of trusting in God to do things versus us trying to do things on our own, you know, that is a constant thing in scripture that we see time and time again that, you know, can can kind of sound cheesy. Like it's something you hear in Bible studies all the time about people. It's like, oh, I'm trying to learn how to like trust in God now, you know, and that, that type of thing. But I think that the reason it comes up in Bible studies all the time is because it's so big of a theme in the entirety of scripture you know and it's something that as humans we never fully learn how to do you know it's like an ongoing thing that we're constantly growing and evolving in and learning how to be a better disciple in that way and so i don't think you've ever arrived there i guess i'll say i think you just constantly are put with tests in your life where you have to keep choosing between scheming and plotting and, and and god you know and i, I really think that the god sometimes gives us a lot of those moments in our life purely to grow us in that regard you know um, yeah
1: and i kind of like that that line where it says quietness and trust is your strength and i i think of quiet as being two different things like quiet on our part, like, there are certain moments that God puts us in where we really can't do anything, where he just prevents us from being able to control something. And then also it's potentially quiet on his part where we're looking for an answer and he's not ready to give the answer just yet. So you kind of just have to be in whatever it is that you're in and then just have to trust that God is going to bring you out at the right moment, even though you're not able to act and do anything and even though you're not getting the answer as soon as you want. So.
0: Right. And I love that, like, um, how th- basically God gives them what they Mm-hmm. want as a re- as a result of them not choosing him it's basically like you know uh, the choice you chose and i think this goes back to the choice of the garden of uh, eden too where you know they get the knowledge of good and evil and that's what causes so much horror as a result right the first thing that they realize is that they're naked and that's not good right and that all comes from the knowledge of what is good and what is evil you know and it's like oh and it's it's this interesting thing of what you get what you ask for you know mm-hmm. like and that's exactly what you see here is that he, they try and flee as instead of just relying on God to take care of them and because they flee God's like very well then you're gonna flee and you're gonna flee quite a bit because yeah. you're gonna have soldiers that are gonna chase you and you have this like thousand will flee at the threat of one at the threat of uh, five the entire country's going to flee. It's just like this, you know, really uh, kind of role reversal where God's like, all right, I'm just going to give you exactly what you asked for. Um, And, uh, you know, you kind of see sort of like a parent taking care of like a child that's like trying to do things outside of the will of the parent. And the parent's like, fine, go, go ahead. You know, (laughs) Uh, And that's definitely how how I kind of read this. Um, And we do have kind of a break after that, where we have this, um, what I would call more of a prose section here that's not in that typical poetic form, uh, where it talks about the people of Zion who live in Jerusalem will weep no more. And so we do have this sense in which there's still a little bit of hope here, right? It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, Um, And that's what I love about how this chapter ends, is it doesn't just end with the Israelites being in this predicament where they're constantly rebelling against God and there's no no hope or anything like that, right? There There is this sense in which God is going to handle Israel like a child because they are acting like a child right now. And he's going to do something in the future that's going to fix all of this, to fix all the brokenness that's going on with Israel and to make everything right. Um, and you see here although the lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction your teachers will be hidden no more with your own eyes you will see them uh, whether you turn to the right or the left your ears will hear a voice behind you saying this is the way walk in it then you will uh, desecrate your idol idols overlaid with silver and your images with gold you will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them away with you you know it's this idea that somehow some way god is going to do something that is going to fix all this, you know, that, that they're going to have a teacher that's going to t- tell them the way to go and they will walk in it, that they will eventually be cleaned and purified from all of this rebellion that they're doing. And I just love that kind of smack dab right in the middle of all this, you know, uh, condemnation. And that's where I will say if you were listening to Isaiah, you would notice these kinds of things even In the middle of all his judgment, right? It wasn't all judgment. It was always there this kind of uh, hidden little paragraphs like this where you see sort of the fact that, yes, you failed, but God hasn't failed and God is still faithful to you and he will still be doing things in the background that are going to do that are going to come out in a way that um, is going to be beautiful and it's going to fix everything. Um,
1: I really like that verse in 26 where it says the moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. So it's almost like, even though they're being punished severely, it's like the, the mercy that he's going to show them is going to greatly outweigh the punishment that he gives them, which I think is like really beautiful and completely undeserved but it's just really it's like really it's just hopeful and it just like lets you know that even though god gets angry like it's like that verse says his anger endures but a moment but his mercy endures forever so god breaks people down but then he builds them back up again so
0: yeah and this is my problem with a lot of people who talk about the Wrath of God, and they talk about it very one-sided. Because I, I, I think that you know Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are all books about the wrath of God. You can look at their books and you can see that it's talking about how God's angry at his people. But every time i read a passage about his anger there's always a passage that follows it about mercy Mm -hmm. and so and i guess it was always pitched to me growing up that like the wrath of god is like a non-negotiable like it's just going to be awful and god can't do anything about it because he's a just god and he's always going to be this type of person and the more and more i read these books the more and more i see that's kind of wrong like that there is always an element of God being merciful in the middle of his wrath, you know, like in the spite of the fact that this entire chapter is full on, you know, you're doing wrong. I'm going to send judgment and uh, devastation upon you. There's always some like seed of hope in the middle of it. That's, mercy, you know? And I think that that's something to consider as we go throughout our our, uh, walks. And even in this like last section, verses 27 through 33, which are another poetry uh, um, section that I think are kind of meant to sort of leave you sort of in a space of kind of contemplation with these two themes of both God promising um, mercy in some future event, and also sort of the judgment that he's also going to bring. And he talks about himself as fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent, like water rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in a sieve of destruction. He places uh, in the jaws of the people a bit that leads them astray. There's definitely some fear there. You're supposed to fear who God is in this. You're supposed to have this sense of, like, uh, this is intense and scary. But at the same time, there's also verse 29 that's like, and you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes Up, go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And there's this, again, this melding of both fear and adoration, right? It's this kind of both and kind of spectrum. And I think a lot of times when people read, The Bible in general, we focus on one element of that way more than the other element. Sometimes we focus too much on the mercy of God and we Mm -hmm. forget the wrath. Sometimes we focus too much on the wrath and forget the mercy. And I think what Isaiah shows us throughout these passages is that they're meant to be taken together, really, and that nothing is supposed to be read kind of separate from one another uh, when when it comes to these thoughts. And so we have the Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, right? You have that. Um, but then you have this like, climactic ending where the places where they sacrifice children Topheth, um that's a place where they would make sacrifices to the god moloch um that's the place where they're gonna like have this fire that like burns up that whole entire area and anybody that uh engaged in the killing of children through that method would be burned up and it's this like interesting way of Everything being set right and everything having both this sense of rejoicing and mercy, but also things being put right um, in the end of this chapter. And I just think that that's like the back and forth that we see um, through Isaiah, really, and through prophecy in general is kind of the both end of that. But, yeah, did you have any closing thoughts on any of that before we end?
1: Um. Other than I was just thinking when you were talking about, you know, making sure we balance out the wrath and that mercy Mm -hmm. of God. It kind of reminds me of the verse I read the other day about kiss the sun lest he be angry. Right. (laughs) Right. That's Psalm 2. And it's sort of like the idea that you definitely don't want to test the anger of God because if you do, you will definitely regret it. But then it's the idea that even if he does get angry, there's always mercy involved and so i just think that that's just so comforting and encouraging as long as you balance out those two understanding that god is god and he can do whatever he wants and nobody can stop him um but yeah and it's just you know god loves his his children that's very evident here despite how much they've disobeyed him and how far they've strayed off so that's pretty much it
0: yeah and i I keep going back to that comment that uh nick our uh, pastor here at Wayfarers, has made to me several times which is that yeah god is a god of wrath but he's also a good God, you know, and he will always take care of the people that he has promised to take care of. Mm-hmm. And just because that people, uh, goes astray, doesn't mean that he is going to lay down those promises, you know, right, and that's, exactly. ki- that's, that's what you see here, you know, uh, and you see kind of, how the justice of God and the mercy of God sort of marry in this beautiful way so yeah thank you so much for tuning into this episode Uh, we will be back in your feed next week to tackle chapter 31 where we talk a little bit more on Egypt and the things that are going on in Egypt so why is
1: it that you always get the short chapters it's only nine verses (laughs) (laughs) I guess God just loves me more No. (laughs) everybody knows I'm God's (laughs) famous
0: thanks guys take care bye